Mark 1, verse 21, uh, when I was, uh, well, years ago, let me put it that way, I was doing a wedding. And when I do weddings, usually before the wedding starts, I'm in the little room with the groom and the groomsman waiting for the wedding to start. So we're sitting there and there's a lot of nervous joking and laughter and, and guys cutting up and saying, hey, hey, buddy, you better, you better make a run for it, man. This is your last chance. And I'm like, okay, every, every wedding, there's some idiot that has to make that joke. Um, don't be that guy. But at this particular wedding, the, the groom's brother, who was also a groomsman, came up to me and said, so what kind of classes did you take in seminary? And so I kind of went through, you know, okay, there were some Bible classes and some theology and some, some uh, philosophy of ministry and leadership, et cetera. And I went on down the line and he goes, okay, well, that's interesting because I'm going to a Pentecostal Bible college right now and I'm hoping to be a, a preacher someday. And right now the class, this semester, the class I'm taking is Signs and Wonders. I was like, okay, well, they didn't offer that at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, if they had, I'd I, I shudder to think what the final exam would be, right? You know, here's this dead squirrel on the side of the road. You raise it to life or you fail, right? Um, you can walk on water if you want some extra credit. But I don't know. I, those of you who, who subscribe to my daily email, if you don't, if you don't know about this, you wanna get a devotional written by me uh, six days out of seven, just go on the website, you can subscribe. But if you get that, you know that right now we're, we're, we're talking about church history. And just a couple of days ago, I talked about the history of the Pentecostal charismatic branch of the faith. And if you read that, you know that I have great respect for people from that, uh, from that side of our family. Uh, but there are differences in beliefs. And today we're gonna to talk about some of those, not specifically that. My, my purpose is not to drive a wedge between us and other kinds of Christians. I just wanna look, get to the bottom of what did the miracles that Jesus performed really mean? And what do they mean for us today? What do they tell us about him? And what do they tell us about how he wants us to live? The Bible says that Jesus performed many miracles. Everybody knows that. Even people who don't know anything else about Jesus know that he walked on water, but John 21, 25 says it this way. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written, which is a tantalizing thought, isn't it? It means we get to heaven, we're gonna learn stories about Jesus that we never heard before, things that they weren't able to write down because there just wasn't room for it all. But what does it mean for us? What does it tell us about him? Today we're gonna to look at a typical week in the life of Jesus that tells you what it was like to be with him, what it was like to be him. So Mark chapter one, verse 21 says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now Jesus was from Nazareth, but Nazareth had rejected him. And so he went to Capernaum. Capernaum was the home of Peter and Andrew, James and John, little fishing village right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. We went there a couple of years ago with a group from our church and literally from the house where we believe Peter lived, it was just about 50 yards to the water. Jesus made that his home base. And for a while, that was where he centered his ministry. Verse 23 says, and immediately, by the way, if you read Matthew, um, I'm sorry, Mark, he loves the word immediately. That's his transition word. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. 
And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, I need to pause here and say a word about demonic possession because this is a big theme in the scriptures and people have, uh, they've read books about it. Remember when The Exorcist came out in the 70s? Boy, that really got people interested in this, in this subject. What does the Bible tell us about demonic possession? The main evidences of it or occurrences of it are in the life of Jesus. And three things we notice. Number one, the demons knew who Jesus was before anyone else did. Now you can say John the Baptist knew and Mary knew, but even they doubted at times. Every time Jesus encountered a person who was possessed by the demon, the demon would speak out and would say, you're the son of God, and the demon would beg him not to hurt him. That should tell you something, right? That should tell you who's stronger. I picture the devil uh, thinking to himself, man, there they go again, giving Jesus free advertising and telling the world that we're weak. You can't even, you can't even get good help in hell, right? I, I, what am I gonna do with these people who work for me? Secondly, the de- secondly, demonic possession took on a variety of forms. Sometimes we see it uh, in the scriptures as manifesting as illness. So a person is deaf because they have an evil spirit or a little boy has epilepsy because of the demon that's inside of him. That does not mean what a lot of people think. That does not mean that ancient people just believed that all illness was caused by evil spirits. At least the Jews didn't. We know this because many of the miracles, many of the healings in scripture, including the one we're about to read about, it doesn't say anything about demons. It just says she was sick, Jesus healed her. So there's a difference. There are other times when demonic possession in scripture looks more like what we would describe as a psychotic episode, a person acting animalistic or or out of control. And and so people have said, oh, okay, well, in the ancient times, they thought all all mental illness was demonic possession. That's not true either. Because we see in the Old Testament, Elijah, Job, and others manifesting what we would describe as severe depression. And yet it doesn't say they were afflicted by a demon, it just says they were downhearted, they, they were at the end of their rope. So, third thing I wanna say about demonic possession in the Bible is, based on the first two points I made, we should be humble about this. We should not walk around trying to diagnose someone as being demonically possessed. Now if God has given you the gift of discernment or the gift of miracles and you can tell, okay, that's something else. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, you know, just because your ex is really, really mean, just because your boss is a jerk does not mean they are possessed of a demon, okay? Do not try to diagnose this. Do not pretend to be an exorcist. You are not unless God has made you one. And don't worry about demons. I, I, there's a whole branch of Christianity, and here's where, here's where we differ somewhat with our Pentecostal charismatic brothers. You don't need to bind demons. When you're praying, you don't have to say, okay, Lord, I bind the enemy. God knows. See, here's here's my point. If you're a little boy, eight years old, and every day when you get off the bus, there's this gang of 12-year-olds who jump on you and beat you up. One day your dad says, tell you what, son, tomorrow, starting tomorrow, every day after that, I'm gonna meet you at the bus, I'm gonna walk you home. Do you worry about those bullies anymore? No, because your dad is bigger, and he's stronger, and he's tougher, And so you don't worry. You don't try to find the bullies behind every rock or or around every corner. You're just like, okay, all I gotta do is stick close to my dad and I'll be okay. And that's the way it is for us as believers. 
You know what spiritual warfare really is? It's stick close to Jesus because when the demons see him, they flee. That's all you need to know. That is all you need to know about the enemy. All right, so move on, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought, him, brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now let me ask you a question, why did the people of the city, the whole city, suddenly show up on Peter's doorstep at sundown? It's because that's when the Sabbath ended. In Jewish thought, the Sabbath began at sundown Friday night, it ended at sundown Saturday night. So Jesus has already had this long and eventful day, he's tired as you and I would be, but the people have been waiting. They can only walk a couple hundred yards according to the, the law of the land on the Sabbath, the sun goes down and they're at his door, lined up for blocks. So he heals them, he, he delivers them late into the night. Now look at the next verse, verse 33, Ver 35 that is. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Some of you know what it's like. Maybe you have a, a, a small child right now or you're working shift work and you know what it is to go to bed late and get up early and you can sustain that for a while. Jesus lived this reality for three years, at least three years. This was his life. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. See, they thought that Jesus would be excited that there was this big crowd. They thought that was the point, to get a big crowd, to, to amass a, a, a big following. Verse 37, verse 38, and he said to them, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. See, what Jesus is saying is, I, I'm not interested in building a big crowd right now. These people are just here because they've seen miracles and they wanna see what else I can do. I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm here to give people the good news that leads to salvation. They're not listening anymore, so let's go to someplace else that might listen. Now, verse uh, 39 says, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now if Jesus performed so many miracles you can't even write them all down, that means that the disciples had to be very selective about which ones they chose to put in their books. Mark and Matthew both choose to tell this story, why? What's so significant about this miracle? I think it's the fact that Jesus touched the man. This is some, not something Jesus usually did. You can look it up. Most of the time Jesus didn't touch the people he healed. Usually he just spoke a word and they were healed. Sometimes they didn't even have to be in his presence. He could say to a centurion, go home, your servant is well. He could say to a religious leader, go home, your little girl is gonna be okay. So why does he touch this man? Keep in mind, leprosy was a feared disease. People who were lepers, you could see their leprosy. It was, it was evident in the lesions on their skin and later on as the, as the disease advanced, they would lose facial features and, and toes and fingers. Keep in mind also that 
the, the person with leprosy was condemned to be isolated from human contact until the day he died. From the day of his diagnosis till the day he died, he could have no human contact. He had to live on the outskirts of town. Jesus didn't have to touch him. In fact, when Jesus touched him, he became ritually unclean. The law said for seven days, Jesus was ineligible to go into the temple from the time he touched a man with a disease like that. And I'm sure Jesus' attitude was, who cares, I am the temple. <laughs> I don't need a priest to make intercession, I am the priest. But, but still, why would Jesus touch him? I mean, the other religious leaders would avoid touching anyone or even getting close to someone who could make them unclean. Why did Jesus have such a cavalier attitude about this? I think it's because he knew that for years this man had had no human contact. I remember years ago hearing a sermon by, by Max Lucado, some of you know who that is, uh, about this story, and he, he, he invited us to imagine what it's like to know that you'll never see your, your spouse, your children, your, your parents, your friends ever again, and live all by yourself, to never have someone wrap an arm around you, to never to have someone shake your hand or give you a hug, uh, to never even have someone pat you on the back. And, and he said, imagine, don't you think you would sneak into town every once in a while when you thought you could get away with it and maybe hide yourself somehow behind a corner, maybe a few blocks away you, so you could watch your kids playing out in the front yard and, and you could notice how tall your son had gotten and how much your daughter was starting to look like her mom and, and then you would get away before anyone saw you because if they saw you, they'd stone you to death. That was the law. Imagine that life. And he said, so when Jesus touches this man, it says specifically he touched him because he had pity on him. And that means Jesus felt what that man was feeling. And he said, if that were me, I'd want somebody to touch me. I'd want somebody to hug me. I'd want somebody to let me know I'm back. I'm not just healed of a disease. I am back among the human race. That's the compassion Jesus had. Now, verse one of chapter two says this. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So this is in Peter's house, right? It's just crammed with people. And it says, and he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, number one, how can four guys carry one guy up to the roof of a house? Number two, how can they get through the roof? Keep in mind, in that world, in that time, you're not talking about shingles and wood and, and all that other stuff, insulation. You couldn't do that today. They had roofs on their house made of thatch. Thatch is mud that's been baked with, with straw and uh, with, with palm, le palm leaves and anything else that will hold that mud together. Secondly, houses in that time, most of them had a little staircase on the outside of the house so you could easily get up to the roof because a family might wanna sleep on the roof when it got hot during the middle of the summer. So you picture these four men, they carry their friend up those steps and they dig through that, that dirt, that grass, that uh, thatch. And you can picture beneath, there's people just cheek to jowl inside that house and suddenly you hear people shouting because there's these chunks of mud falling on them and leaves and straw and there's this space that clears out at the bottom and you look up and there's a hole that appears and I can imagine Peter's wife looking at him like, are you gonna do something about this? And Peter looks at Jesus and Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm looking at this. This is what matters. 
The person is what, we can fix your roof later. The person is what matters. By the way, I wonder if Peter was like, hey, Jesus, you want to snap your fingers and fix the roof? But he didn't, as far as we know. Verse um, five says, and when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their, the four friends, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, man, you didn't want to be around Jesus if you were thinking bad thoughts, did you? Did you? That's, that would be hard. Said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So that's a week in the life of Jesus. What does it tell us about him? What does it tell us about how he wants us to be? Four things, number one, God hasn't changed. He still works miracles. Some of you could give testimony to that. If we passed around a microphone, some of you could stand up and say, the doctor said I had no chance to live, and yet here I am. The doctor said I would never walk again, and yet here I am. The doctor said my child would be uh, permanently disabled and look at him today. You could tell those stories. See, God is still the same God. This idea that miracles stopped with the end of the biblical age is unbiblical. And so we are absolutely justified and in fact, we absolutely should pray for God to do the impossible. If you're not regularly praying for God to do something that is physically impossible, then you're wasting such a spectacular resource. But number two, it's gonna sound like the opposite of number one, but number two, miracles are rare. They're not ordinaries, they're miracles. They don't happen every day, they don't happen every month, they may not even happen every year. There's this, there is this misconception that a lot of Christians have. Oh, back in Bible times, people were getting healed left and right. Back in Bible times, people were doing all kinds of miracles. That's not the way it worked. If you look at it closely, you'll find that most, not all, but most of the miracles in scripture took place within three pretty narrow historical periods, less than a century each. You're talking about Exodus in the time of Moses. You're talking about the days of Elijah and Elisha. That's two generations. You're talking about Jesus and the apostles. That's roughly a, a generation and a half. And even in those times, most people on earth never saw or experienced a miracle. There were millions of people alive when Jesus was on earth. Many of them struggled. Many of them were sick. Most of them never got healed because they never met Jesus. And even the ones who were healed in Jesus' time eventually got sick and died again of something else. Even Lazarus, raised from the dead, hallelujah, he had to die again a second time. Poor Lazarus had to go through that twice. Miracles are rare. In fact, I'm gonna say this. You're not gonna like this. Most of the time you and I pray for miracles, God's gonna say no. He intervenes rarely. He intervenes at key moments when only he knows that it's right. Paul prayed for a miracle. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, according to 2 Corinthians 12. Some physical ailment, scholars speculate it may have been he was slowly going blind or had malaria or, or migraine headaches or something that was debilitating and he prayed, Lord, take this away from me. And God told him, no. 
Is that because Paul had less faith than you? I wouldn't bet on it. Sometimes, in fact, usually God will say no to miracles. But when he says no, you can trust that he knows what he's doing. In fact, think about the story of Joseph in the, in the Old Testament, in the, in the book of Genesis. Here's a 17-year-old kid. His brothers pounce on him and, and, and throw him into a well. Don't you think he prayed, Lord, deliver me, they're gonna kill me. Then they draw him up and they sell him to slave traders. Lord, please free me, set me free from these guys. Don't let them take me to some other country. They take him to Egypt. God's answer is no. They sell him to a, a man named Potiphar, the captain of the guard. Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of a terrible crime. Don't you know that he prayed, Lord, please don't let my master believe what his wife says, but of course he believed. Joseph is thrown into a dungeon where he sits for two years. Don't you know that for two years every day he said, Lord, please set me free. Finally, he's set free. He's, he's taken before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh is so impressed. He makes Joseph his right-hand man, from which position Joseph is able to guide the nation of Egypt in such a way that they're able to, to overcome a seven-year famine and, in fact, resource the entire Mediterranean world. And then one day, 20 years after his brothers sold him into slavery, they show up on his doorstep, all middle-aged and haggard and starving, and he says, aha, uh -huh, now I get it. What you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. God didn't cause you to do any of these bad things. God didn't cause Potiphar's evil wife to, to accuse me. God said no to my prayer for a miracle because he knew that it would lead to this. It would lead to this opportunity to save many lives, including your lives. If, if God would have said yes to any of my miracles, none of this would have happened. We'd all be starving to death, including me. We can trust that God always answers every prayer that we pray the way that we would if we knew what he knows. Number three, salvation, not physical healing, is the point, is the goal. For Jesus, his miracles were always a means to an end. Jesus was not here to cancel out illness. He will, and that day will come, but it wasn't then. Jesus was here to show people the kingdom of God. Essentially, his miracles were a way of saying, the place I'm from, is a place where there's no illness and there's no, there's no death and there's no crippling injury. There's none of that. Don't you wanna go there? I can get you there. So that's why Jesus leaves Capernaum when there's this huge crowd gathered to see him because he wants to preach the gospel, not do party tricks. This is why before he ever heals the paralyzed man, he tells him his sins are forgiven because that was more important. He was gonna heal him either way, but the salvation is what mattered most. This is why all through the gospels, whenever Jesus heals somebody, he says, now don't tell anybody I did this to you because he doesn't wanna be known as a miracle worker. He wants people to know the gospel. Salvation is the point. Salvation is the goal. See, this explains why oftentimes we don't get what we ask for. This explains why oftentimes we don't get the prayer we prayed for answered in the affirmatively, especially when we pray for a miracle, because God knows, God knows, I'm only gonna use a miracle when it serves the cause of salvation. But in some cases, in many cases, it's pain and not healing that leads us to Christ. You talk to anybody who was saved after their adulthood, 
See, a lot of folks in this room, including me, we got saved as a child or as a teenager, and that's different because you're more receptive to faith at that time. But people who came to Christ as adults, not all, but many, probably most, it came during a time or, or just after a time of real crisis, addiction, uh, grief, uh, loss of a loved one, loss, of, loss of, of income, loss of physical health, discouragement. That's when people realize life isn't working out for me doing it on my own and they cry out to God and they find salvation. Even after we're saved, God continues to use the trials of life to make us more like Jesus because that's the whole point of salvation. It's not just to get us to heaven, otherwise God would zap us to heaven the moment we get saved. No, it's to become like Jesus. And if you're honest, if you look back over the course of your life as a longtime Christian, you can say, okay, I really grew during that season when I was doubting. I really grew during that season when I was discouraged, disappointed, when I was confused. God uses pain. He doesn't necessarily cause all our pain, but he uses pain for his glory. Number four. Number four, our goal should be to develop the the character of Jesus. God may never give anybody in this room the gift of healing or the gift of miracles. If he does, let us know because we wanna celebrate that. We wanna, we, wanna use, we wanna use that to God's glory. We wanna help you use that to God's glory. But you don't have to be able to heal someone with a touch to be significant in God's sight. Your goal should not be to be a great person. Your goal should be to be like Jesus. And whatever that means, God will, will determine the rest. You know, people sometimes ask me, and maybe you're wondering right now, well, I've seen these guys on TV who claim to be able to work miracles. These guys who, they put their hand on someone's forehead and they immediately collapse, like some power has blown them down. Or, or on the other side, I've seen news stories about these faith healers and they've, they've looked into them, they've investigated, and it turns out the guy's a sham, a, a total fraud. So how do I know? If I'm watching TV and a guy's healing people or if I'm, if I'm in a crowd or I'm at a church and someone comes forward and gets healed, how do I know that's real? And I'm gonna say something that's gonna surprise you. You can't know. You can't know whether a miracle is real unless it happens to you or someone you know well. Someone you know well gets healed, well, yeah, that's obviously real. But if you're watching on TV or you're in a big arena or a big church, you can't tell, especially today, with the power of technology, they can make us believe anything they want to if we're gullible enough. Nowhere in the scriptures does it tell us this is how you know whether, whether a miracle is legitimate or not. You know what it does tell you? This is how you know whether this person is legitimate. Don't look at the miracle, look at the man. Don't try to judge the miracle, judge the instrument. The man or woman who claims to have miracle working power. Jesus said, here's how you know a real teacher of God. You judge them by their fruits. And unlike what a lot of people think, their fruit isn't the size of their crowd and it's not their talent, it's not their eloquence, their fruit is their character. You look it up, you do a word study on the, on the word fruit in the New Testament and fruit almost always refers to character. The fruit of the spirit according to Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is why I say, I've said this before and I wanna say it again, It is fine to have favorite Christian authors, favorite preachers that you podcast. I I recommend that. But don't invest in those people. Don't make that your guru. In fact, no one should be your guru but Christ. But this is why you need to be tied into a local church. You need a life group leader. You need a pastor or pastors. You need people who are watching out for your soul because you can observe their lives. 
I mean, I love Tim Keller. I have no idea if he's a good guy or not. I admire Max Lucado, Philip Yancey. They may be total jerks in real life, right? I doubt it, I hope not. But I'm not gonna invest myself in them. You can observe my character. You can observe the character of the pastor or, or the minister, ministry staff or the life group leader at any church you go to and you can ask yourself the question, are they humble? Do they love others? Even those who are critical of them. When people criticize and question them, do they respond by getting angry and defensive or do they respond with graciousness? Do they love people who have failed? Because that's like Jesus. Do they love people who've let them down? and disappointed them. That's the character of Christ. That's what we should be looking for. We should be growing into that character too. We should look at Jesus and say, I wanna be like those four friends who carried this man to the top of a roof and dug through the roof, not even worrying whether Peter's gonna get angry and come beat them all up. They just wanted to bring someone to Jesus and it was because of their faith that he was saved. Are you praying that God would make you the kind of person who brings people to salvation? Are you praying that you'll become like Jesus who touched that leper? Are you, are you praying? Because see, the thing is, the religious leaders of that time, their whole way of thinking, their whole philosophy of life was, I gotta avoid uncleanness at all costs. So they were never around sinful people. Is that your faith? Is that what your Christianity looks like? I, I need to stay away from dirty people. I need to stay away from sinful people. I need to stay away from people who can hurt my reputation. I only need to be around the best of people. That's, that's one pole. On the other side is the way Jesus was. Jesus didn't avoid unclean people. He made them clean. So which are you more like? You're probably somewhere in the middle, right? Are you praying that Jesus would make you more like himself, that you're drawn to sinners, that you're drawn to people who are hurting, who failed, that you want to help them find redemption and hope, that you want to, at the very least, convince them, you know, because I love Jesus, I love you. Because that's what Jesus has done to me. That can have a profound impact. You wanna know the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed? It wasn't raising Lazarus. It wasn't even himself rising from the dead. The greatest miracle Jesus ever performed was saving your soul and mine because it was the one miracle he performed that he couldn't just speak into existence. He couldn't just say, rise and walk, be saved. No, he couldn't do that. In order for us to be saved, it required him giving his life. And he did it. That's the story of Christianity. That's what it means to be a follower. That's what it means to be saved. And to become like Jesus means becoming a person who gives his or her life away, who consistently says, I see you over there, I see what you're going through, it would be easier for me to walk away, but I'm going to sacrifice my time, my energy, my bandwidth, my talent, my money, whatever it takes to help you. That's what it means to be in a transforming relationship. You know, the sign and wonder the whole world is waiting to see is a group of people who love like that. Because that group doesn't exist on this earth apart from the body of Christ. The world is looking for a group of people who consistently and joyfully give themselves away. So let's be that group. 